Hi, I'm Marietta Del Vecchio and welcome to another episode of the Silver Bullet Podcast. This podcast is about lessons learned in running a business with a strong focus on startup founders and CEOs. We'll uncover what gaps these disruptors have identified in the market, what they're doing differently to their competitors, and of course, to find out their silver bullet for business success. On today's episode of the Silver Bullet Podcast, I'm chatting with Phil Hayes Sinclair, the co-founder and CEO of DropBio Health, the at-home digital health and biotech company that focuses on chronic inflammation, allowing people to detect, track and reverse health trends over time. During the podcast, we chat about how COVID had an unexpected positive impact on the business, why being open to collaboration and partnerships is key to growth, and how the downfall of Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes threatened to deter investors. Phil, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Hey, Marietta, so good to be here. And we should probably disclose that we do actually know each other, don't we? You were my teacher in entrepreneurship and innovation class in my MBA. It's true. It's true. It feels like a long, long time ago, but obviously one of my most enjoyable classes. And likewise, our most enjoyable teacher. (laughs) (laughs) So why don't you start by telling our uh, listeners a little bit about Drop Bio Health. What do you guys do? Sure. So Drop Bio Health is an at-home health technology business, and we were established about five years ago. Um, And before COVID, what we were really interested in as scientists was this idea of prevention and preventative health. But we'd looked back in all the scientific and medical literature around how you could very genuinely predict the onset of a chronic disease. And so we set out about trying to make that way of discovering when somebody is about to get quite sick. Um, we, we discovered a way to um, measure things in your blood and combine that with really interesting lifestyle habit data um, because lifestyle habits are really the key predictor for how your health is going to progress in the future. And we're able to combine all those things and make that happen while you're at home. So that meant that we could track you over time, give you information to help you understand what decisions to make about your health and well-being, and really to just give you a bit of air cover so that you weren't, if you had, for example, a family history of some kind of chronic disease, we could give you some really early knowledge about um, whether something was sort of trending in a particular direction or not. Um, and then, you know, we set this up so that we could send things to your home. You could collect a bit of blood at home, send it back to us. We would then do a bunch of stuff on our side to give you that knowledge. Um, and then COVID hit and then all things around at-home healthcare became really important. So as far as timing is concerned, it was, it's been a pretty good time for us. So for some people, COVID was a bit of a business killer, but for you, would you say it was the, had the opposite impact? You got a lot more traction, a lot more interest? Yeah, a lot more. I think, you know, sometimes you have a once in a lifetime sort of shift in the world. And there were three things that happened through COVID, which were super, super beneficial for us. Um, and one of those was that, you know, people started to use at-home testing, right? People were sticking things up their nose, trying to work out if they had COVID positive or not, and the rat test became a really ubiquitous kind of thing, which was great. Um, but it also became the case that people developed you know, knowledge around this thing called inflammation, and that's really useful for us because we, we trade and understand that really deeply. And so when people sort of connected the idea of inflammation and COVID, it just became something in people's psyche, which we could then have a very different kind of conversation on. And the last part was that, Um, people took a real interest to understand, well, I don't want to get COVID. 
what does it, what happens if I do get COVID? Does it get worse by combining that with something like diabetes or you know a cardiac condition? And the answer is, of course, yes, it does. But people start to realise this thing called a comorbidity. In other words, another condition which can sort of compound the impact that became front and centre for people. So people's general health and well-being became front of mind. And look, I could have tried to market all these messages to people for a decade to still not get that landed. Um, COVID sort of helped us do that job. So it, it made uh, it made our work and our, the interest in what we were doing really, really escalate, which was, which was good for us. You mentioned that you look into inflammation. Tell us a bit more about the areas of health that you focus on. Yeah, so inflammation, and as, as a scientist, it's, you know, I could geek out about this a lot, and it's a really exciting sort of area. When we hear about inflammation, often people associate that with um, pain and discomfort. Um, often the colour red is associated with inflammation, which is kind of interesting. Um, and it's because when you have acute inflammation, you end up, it, it comes to you as a consequence of some kind of injury or some kind of very localised issue. Uh, you might be bitten by something, you might have a sight injury. And that's your body sort of reacting to the issue. So, you know, it does a good job usually of resolving that. Within a week or so, it's kind of gone. Swelling's gone down. Heat's gone down. Um, but the second type of inflammation is what we call systemic chronic inflammation. And this is this beautiful collection of proteins and hormones that are sort of your body's natural defense network. And it's forever going around your body. It's naturally occurring. And it is there to jump to your defense when you're asleep, when you're awake, to try and fend off the flu or COVID or anything else. It's just that when that becomes what we call dysregulated, so it starts to operate not in its normal cycle, that's throwing off sort of smoke to a fire. And it's our job to try and detect that change so that we can go, hmm, I wonder why that smoke is there and can we point it towards something in your lifestyle or something in your history that says, actually, we should keep an eye on that now because it's probably going to be the first time we're seeing the development of something that while we might not know what it is right now, now we're going to pay more attention to you so we can give you some of that early warning. So we look at inflammation, of course, but we look at um, other things that are really fundamental to health, like mental health, like sleep, like stress, like how you hydrate, like body fat composition, um, and things like um, those factors that are really controllable. So when people sort of say to us, you know, what is, what's the number one thing that I can do? Like, where's the silver bullet, right? Um, the silver bullet actually is to do with sleep often, right? It's about going to bed at the same time. It's actually about getting the eight hours of sleep. And so for those people who are hustling really hard, like I've done for many years, I've learned that, you know, I become more powerful in the way that I can do my work if I get seven or eight hours of sleep every night. And if there's one thing for people to do, it would certainly be that. So how does the actual product work? People jump on your website, they order it. What happens next? Yeah, so they receive a small sample collection kit, which looks like a little box um, and it has inside it all the things you need to do to safely prick your finger, put a few drops in a tube and then send that back. And it comes back to us via Express Post. Um, at the same time you do that, and it usually happens first thing in the morning, um, we get you to answer a questionnaire, which takes about so seven or eight minutes. And that's really important because it gives us sort of context to why we might see a blood test result. So for those people who have gone, and we've all had a blood test at some point, you know, you um, you go to the doctor, they give you a script, you want it down to a pathology lab, hopefully the same day, and then they take the blood and then you get the results back pretty quickly. And for the most part, people get results back. The doctor, you, know, you call up the doctor and the doctor says, yep, you're fine, or we've got to look at this or whatever, whatever the thing is that goes on. But you rarely get any kind of real insight because the leading principle for a long, long time has been 
This is knowledge that a doctor has to translate so that you can understand. The problem with that, although it's a really good model, is that people often don't get taught what it, what it, what fine means. And they're not taught about what is being measured or what a range is or what happens if it's out of range and what could cause something to go out of range because you could just have the flu and things could go out of range, right? So there's a lot of things that we try to do when you send back that sample. We analyze it using very standard equipment that most labs do. Um, but then we look at that data and we put that in the context of what your lifestyle information was. And we give that back to you in a secure online account, which basically says, here's how I answered my lifestyle questionnaire, which by the way, people get better at doing every time they do it. Because if I said to you, hey, Marietta, how many serves of vegetables do you have a week? You'd sort of go, mm, I think it's kind of this. As we ask you that question more and more, you actually get better at answering it. Um, and then over time, we can say to you, here's where you can focus on lifestyle. Here's how your bloods look. And by the way, in order to improve this blood score, here's the lifestyle thing you can start doing right now. By the way, here's some really tactical things you can do. And we have people doing this either once a year, twice a year, or four times a year, depending on what they're really interested in. And that allows them to really, for the first time, track their own underlying personalized level of health. So that if you are unwell for whatever reason, if you are carrying a little bit too, too much weight, for example, or you are just really stressed, we can help to guide you on what you need to do to improve that and then maintain that over time um, because we're all trying to age well, right? And we, we, we don't want to get caught out. Um, and so we just think it's a really valuable tool for people to, to sort of start using. But it's really as simple as that. Go online, select the membership. We send you out a kit. You do some stuff at home. comes back to us. We give you information. Um, and that information is is all yours. So we, we try and pride ourselves in making sure that, um, you know, from a privacy and all, all the data security points of view, we're kind of just the custodians. You know, you are the owner of that data. So if you want to delete it all, if you want to show it to your GP, if you want to share it with your partner, with friends and family, it's like it's entirely your call. Um, we're just here to give you the knowledge so that you can live a little bit healthier and a little bit happier. So do you assess all the, in that blood test, you sort of assess all or a wide range of vitamins, minerals, and then it's translated by a doctor and then uploaded to that platform? Yeah, good question. So we measure 25 different, we'll call, we'll call them blood biomarkers. And these are things like hormones and proteins um, that are really important to longevity. And we've, we've done a lot of work to work out which of those 25, what, why those 25, because you could measure hundreds and hundreds of things. Um, but the reality is that with the small sample that we collect, there's only so much you can measure. And so we've decided those 25 are quite important. And when they go through our lab process and they get quality assured before they, before they leave, we've been able to present this information um, with a high enough a level of quality that a doctor doesn't need to sign off on it before you see it. But we've done that so that you can get access to it quicker. But it's important to stress that none of this is here for diagnostic purposes. So we're not here to try and tell you, listen, there's a cancer diagnosis here or there's a you know, diabetes diagnosis. This is all about wellness data so that you can make decisions. And actually, the, the biggest thing we're trying to get you to do is to actually go and talk to your doctor about these results, right? So mostly people come to us because the healthcare systems let them down. They don't have the information they want. And we can't always be the people that give them everything they need, but it might be a piece to a puzzle. But when people sort of go then say to us, hey, I went to this to my GP, it was like, yes, they've taken action, they've moved on, and now they can sort of have more insight for themselves. Because as it turns out, the more you can empower people with, with safe information that they can act on, um, the more action they're likely to take. And that usually leads to, to a good outcome. 
Yeah, it seems like it's a really good step kind of before that GP move because sometimes it feels like going to the GP is a bit too dramatic a step. Like it's like, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired or I feel like I could do better or I wonder where my levels or hormones or whatever are at, but I don't feel like I have Mm. any symptoms and nobody wants to go into the doctor and go, I'm fine, but can you just test stuff? (laughs) Well, it's true and it's also interesting because GPs have a really tough job. Um, generally. And what they're taught, and correctly so, is that you should order a test when you feel as though it will, you know, an intervention will follow. Um, And when people are generally healthy, and we've got to remember that doctors are trained to make people healthier, or to try and address a health concern when they can be diagnosed as being unwell, they're not actually trained to keep people well. Mm. Right. And so this is the thing that people sort of forget a little bit when it comes to prevention. It's reactive, right? Yeah, a little bit um, and designed to be that way, right? If you're unwell and that was just something that happened to you recently, you want to get treated and that's that's what that infrastructure is there for, you know, all the specialists and hospitals and everything else. But, you know, when we think about who we're there to serve, we're actually there to serve a bunch of people who are already healthy, who just want to stay healthy. And that's that's helpful to them. It's also helpful to us. But we play that role of we see something and we put you into primary care, into a GP, so that if we see something that we think could be a little bit off, then they have the tools and the knowledge to then follow that down that path. So we're kind of handing a baton between somebody who's relatively healthy to a specialist, in this case a GP, to actually follow it up if there's something that needs to be dealt with. Are you privy to um, patient data in terms of knowing if there's any trends, common trends among people's results? Yeah, so we do a lot of data analysis work to sort of understand that. You know, a lot of people, when you go through that structured survey, people, we ask, you know, um, have you had COVID recently? Have you had a vaccine recently? Do you have a pre-existing condition? Are you taking any medications? All of these things help to inform um, the knowledge that we give back to a, to one of our members. Um, and so we do see some really fascinating trends across the board that we obviously de-identify to understand what those what those trends are. But it's things like, you know, there is a marker, that, a, a blood protein that we look at called leptin, and it plays a really important role in fat in, in weight management, so fat loss and, and fat gain. And it's one of those markers that actually starts to change before somebody, if someone's trying to lose weight, for example, it starts to change before you see a change in scales or change in your weight. It's like a lead indicator that actually something's happening, which is actually kind of useful when you're trying to you know, make a change and you're going, I keep on slogging myself at the gym and I keep on eating well, but I don't see a change yet. Well, the body takes a little while to sort of kick into gear to lose that weight. But there are some of these markers that are telling you really, really early, hey, hang in there because it is biochemically, it's working. Once the body catches up, things are going to sort of work in a much better way. So that's a really good example of it. Other ones are, you know, the way in which people um, develop trust in healthcare knowledge. So you ask the question about, you know, when somebody goes through a, a survey and they're answering all these things, you know, when you go to a GP, there is a surprising number of people that feel worried to go because they feel as though they might be judged. And this is quite a, a it's a very strong thing that we see in a lot of our women's health work. But the interesting thing here is that when you use a product like ours, and there are other products out there that you can get off the, um, you know, directly to you as a consumer, um, we're there to help remove that level of judgment, right? Because no one else sees this data. This is kind of just for you. So is there a point you sort of not telling the truth? Not really. Um, and this is why when what we've discovered is that people not only get better at collecting this sample, answering the questions, but as they develop a real um, interest in their own health, they sort of go, 
I'm really, I really want to geek out about this. I'm going to try and be as, as forthright as I can, as much as my memory will allow me to do, because sometimes it's difficult to remember all the things you do in life. Um, but it is really interesting to see that psychology play out when people use this over time. Where did the idea come from for Drop Bio and what made you so passionate about going on the founder journey with this idea? Yeah, well, as you know, I've done, I've done the founder journey a number of times. And um, when I was uh, in the army, when I, when I finished school, I listened to the army. I had to do a degree in order to go and do my dream job, which was, which was to fly. And it didn't really matter what the degree was. So I enrolled in a Bachelor of Science and bounced around all the disciplines until I found microbiology and immunology. And, you know, my brain was just exposed to this idea that there are all these things that keep us alive, um, all of these functions that we don't really, well, we're not really consciously thinking about, but it's still, they still go on and they still somehow miraculously keep us alive. And I did four and a half years or four years of that in a degree, and I never really used it. And then when I finished doing my most recent sort of consumer technology ventures, I just sort of felt a bit over the idea of doing more software and more, you know, device. Um, and I actually went to become a, a late stage, well, I guess a mature age student in medicine. So I applied to go back and be a, a late doctor. Um, and my now chairman and co-founder said to me, actually, I don't think you should do that. I think medicine's actually pretty broken. Uh, we've got to be rethinking this. And there was some really fascinating research coming out of a company here in Sydney, which had been able to identify that in red blood cells or on the surface of red blood cells, there was this really intricate um, set of communication that was going on that was telling your body how to respond and react. And we call that our immune system, but we had thought that the immune system um, played out in a very different type of blood cell. When I was sort of exposed to this, everything from my undergraduate degree came flying back from the back of my head to the front of my head. And it was like, oh my God, this is the time. So it's, you know, this is obviously well before COVID, but it was when I was doing this in my undergrad, doing this testing was so expensive and so cost, just so cost prohibitive and people just didn't care very much. And then you sort of fast forward and you see these trends of personalized health and healthcare systems breaking and people going, actually, I need to be more empowered. And all these macro trends were sort of pointing the right way. And then we started to do some clinical trials to work out, well, you know, would people prick their finger if we sent them a kit to do this? Like, that's kind of weird. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a foreign thing if you're not a diabetic to prick yourself to get a bit of blood out of your finger. And we did these trials and people, to, my, to our surprise, they did it. And it was like, oh, and they do it pretty well. And not only can we do that, we can actually see things in the samples when they send them back to us via post. Is there a model here? And all of a sudden, my brain was like, there is a model here. Um, and so the question was, how do you bring that to life? Who's the customer? What's the regulatory standing? Um, how do you build a lot of trust? And you know, as I mentioned to you a little bit earlier, we brought this to life at the same time that the Theranos story broke. Um, and this has become, it's, it's part of every day, right? You have this huge fraud where you know, $800 million of US money was put into a company. It was all hugely fraudulent. And it was all about diagnosing hundreds of conditions from a drop of blood, which, by the way, is completely impossible. Um, but it was so fantastical that every time we were trying to sort of pitch this idea that, yes, we were taking finger out of, uh, sorry, blood out of your finger. It was a small amount, not just one drop, but a small amount. And we were doing it remotely. It was just like, are you another Theranos? And we just, no. Oh. <laughs> but we had to, we had to, and even to today, we've had to over-rotate on building so much trust with regulators, with our partners in our science, in our quality systems, 
that it's actually become a really great thing to talk about because it's forced us to become so clean and so you know tight on the regulation that we hold um, that it's quite helpful. But I mean, the number of times I've heard investors go, look, I just don't want to be tarnished with something like this. If this goes wrong, it's going, this is what progress looks like. So for the love of God, give us a chance. And fortunately, we've had these incredible investors who have invested you know, four times now to see us get to a point where we are right now. And it's been a, it's been a tricky, tricky journey because we don't have um, all the resource in Australia like they do in the States in terms of venture capital. And it does take a leap to try and move the needle on these kind of, you know, these kind of jumps. But when you think about like legacy, when I look back on my last days, you know, a big thing for me was how do we create a different model of healthcare that will just help people just live a better life? And we're a really small cog in a really large opportunity um, and being able to get into people's homes and help them make it more convenient, make it more accessible um, just feel like a really good use of time. Um, and I have the best job in the world because as an undergraduate scientist with postgraduate training, but not enough to be called you know, a proper scientist, um, it's one of those things where I get to go into labs, I get to geek out with people who are just really talented. And then I've got software engineers and product developers and uh, marketers who are just hell bent on making a change to healthcare. And it's just, it's the first time I've felt such strong mission orientation um, from after leaving the army, so it's just a it's just a great time to be doing this stuff. It seems very serendipitous that everything laid out the way the way it did for you. You couldn't have picked it though. It's amazing. Tell us a little bit more about your geeking out in in labs. You guys were recently featured in the British Medical Journal. Yes, that was um, that was kind of cool. Um, you know, a really high profile publication. It wasn't research that we published, but it was talking about um, how we'd solved a really important problem in in getting to people. So, you know, <clears throat> the last time you gave blood, I'm sure, took your script, went to a collection center somewhere and sat in a queue and was wondering what was going on. They took an enormous amount of blood usually, and then it goes off to a magical place to get analyzed. And what we had been able to think about was what would happen if we could just have people collect this at home and collect an amount of blood, which was enough to do a bunch of testing on? Um, that was fine, but you know, we were asking people to then put that back into a yellow express post bin and have that sent back. And the question was, well, doesn't that mean that the blood's exposed to the environment? The answer is, of course it is. But we had invented a way to put these really clever um near-field communication chips on a, on the boxes that we send out. And these are things that, that allow us to collect time and temperature and other environmental um, measurements so that if the sample comes back, which usually, by the way, takes about a day and a half, but if it comes back and it takes a bit longer than that, then some of the, the blood biomarkers we're measuring can degrade because they get exposed. And it's whilst the, the packaging is quite robust, the issue is that some will degrade over time faster than others. And we invented a way to use those that, that data collection in transit to be able to correct accurately and then validate against normal blood testing that we could tell what the sample was like at the time it came out of your finger, um, even though it spent multiple days in the post. And so that meant that, you know, we could send a kit out to somebody in Dubbo or in rural WA or wherever you know, healthcare is not that accessible or even, frankly, in Sydney CBD or Melbourne CBD, and 
instead of having, you having to find time in your day to get to a pathology collection center, you could do this at home, put it back in the express post box, it would come back to our lab and we can correct for all these factors um, and still do it at a remarkable level of precision. That just meant that we opened up this entire sort of ecosystem to being able to be decentralized. And that for us is one of our core parts of intellectual property. Um, but as you can probably imagine, it just creates such a level of access and equality. And when it comes to clinical trials, which usually go for a really, really long time and there's dropout because people get disinterested or it's just really hard to get to a place like a hospital. This just means that those clinical trials can be so much cheaper to execute, which means that people stay in them longer. Um, it also means that we can generate knowledge for new therapies so much more inexpensively, which ultimately means the cost to get those medicines to market and those therapies to market goes through the floor. And that means that people can be healthier for longer. So that whole cycle, just getting that point of access sorted um, was something that was just um, just really nice and super super humbled to be sort of acknowledging that kind of publication because it's it it means a, a great deal to us. So is that another opportunity for your um, business to work with clinical trials and provide that part of the service or even just the hardware and the the technology for them to be able to conduct their decentralized trials? That's it, and we do that right now. So it's um, apart from doing. What you see on our website at dropbyhealth.com, right? If you went to go and get a membership, that's one part of our business. Um, the thing that lives in the background is all of that great science that we can do. And, you know, we there's only so much we can do as a team of, you know, 12 or 14 people. Um, but when you go and talk to some of the world's most incredible researchers who are just struggling to get people to participate in trials because it's just difficult, um, when you add this kind of convenience, it just becomes this, um, this always... Uh, I guess it always be, it becomes a technology I always wanted as a researcher to learn more quicker. And it's just like, that's just such a great thing to be able to provide to academics, particularly here at UNSW, but also to our colleagues around the world. And yeah, it's just the beginning of this. It's really, really exciting stuff. Back to the sort of customer facing side of your business, what's the growth been like and, and the uptake? Yeah, so it's interesting. We um, launched uh, the first version of Wellbeing, which is the, the product we do for wellness. Um, about this time last year, and we called it version 1.0. Uh, and we launched it to about 150 people, and it was designed to sort of have um, all the features. And it was really also designed to be a, a real full systems test for us. We wanted to see, you know, if people would pay, what their experience was like, all the things that we did, all of our lab processing and data processing. And um, and that went quite well. And then we we ended up getting a lot of really positive feedback, but we also knew we could improve it really substantially. So we paused purchase of that in October last year and then took all the feedback and recreated Wellbeing to be Wellbeing 2.0, which we launched about two weeks ago. Um, in that time, we developed a wait list of 1,000 people, which will soon get access to this. And we started to make this available to private health insurers, to large employers, and also to healthcare providers so that they could start to make this available to their patients or their employees or, um, or what have you. And um, that B2B approach has been really quite successful. So we find ourselves now... Um, trying to deal with the volume that we get through this. And it's been um, a really great start because our job is to try and get to as many people as possible. You could try and do this through, through a consumer um, through a consumer market, but it's a tough, it's a tough sell. Um, you know, people, everyone is just saturated in, in digital channels. So trying to do marketing like that is quite tough. Um, but when, you know, a pharmacy makes this available to you, um, if a hospital makes it available as part of your discharge plan, um, if, your employer goes, actually, 
this is an arm's length relationship, but we'd like to look after you and your partner a little bit more. You can use wellbeing and we'll pay for part of that. Um, or if your private health insurance fund sort of goes, look, um, the whole thing for us is to keep you healthier for longer because we'd like to, frankly, pay less claims. Um, we're still going to pay them when they're relevant, but we can find a way to make you healthier so you don't end up in hospital as well. You know, we'd recommend you use wellbeing and that can be um, a deal that you strike with the insurer. That that becomes a really positive place for us and it gives us access to millions of people. So um, the next 18 months is going to be uh, a pretty busy time, I think, for us. What's the competitive landscape like? Do you have any competitors? It's interesting, right? So we we look at competition in two ways. Um, short answer is no, there's nothing like what we do here in Australia. There's a couple of options in the US and UK, um, Thriver in the UK, um, Everly Well in, um, in the US. And they've, they've built really interesting businesses. Um, they do provide sort of a really strong marketing translation um, to what you see in blood tests, but they also do send those samples to a conventional pathology lab. So they're really sort of like a, a marketing um, marketing perspective for, for traditional tests. And we really try to look at blood markers, which are um, very useful and also very conventional so that we can sort of put those into your into you so you can learn more about them. Um, but it's interesting when you think about competition in healthcare, it's very different to any other sector. For us, um, and when I talk to my investors about competition, I sort of tell them to think a bit more about how big healthcare actually is. And it's very difficult to sort of say, here's how big the market is, here's what we're going to go and pursue. Some investors need to see that, but most investors go, actually, we're looking forward to you joining forces with other organizations, whether they be government or other commercial companies, because no one can no one can capture this market opportunity by themselves. It's just too big. So when I think about um, healthcare competition, um, I tend to talk, turn away from that kind of characterization, I tend to sort of say, actually, it is just too big. And I'm actually looking forward to finding companies that we can partner with um, or acquire so that we can be part of something a little bit bigger because there's a there's a many, many, many millions of people that need help. Um, and if we tried to sort of go it alone, I think, we, I think we'd make some mistakes. I'm going to turn the chat back to you and your, your story a little bit for a second, Phil. Take us back to, I guess, your career journey, and you've had a number of transitions, as you mentioned. You went from the the army to corporate world, doing human centered design, product design, um, and then you sort of started your entrepreneurship journey. What was it at each of those junctures that sparked something in you to say, oh, "This isn't right. I need to do something different." Um. So the army one was was done for me. So I they had helped me diagnose an eye condition I never knew that I had, and so I was on track to go and do that dream job um, of flying. And they discovered that, and that that made me, in inverted commas, unserviceable. So I was not able to sort of continue that. And that was that was probably the toughest chapter I'd had to learn. You know, I was you know mid or well, early early twenties, um, didn't really have a plan B. Thought that I'd retire a professional soldier um, and. I just I was full into that option. So when that finished, I just had to find a job, and I I, I just got a part time job in a in a banking call center, answering internet banking calls, um, and that was just to pay the rent, and it was it was fine. But what the army had taught me was the value of knowing how to follow and also how to identify great leaders. So I just found myself um, looking for people that I could go and join their teams. I spent sort of five, six years, I think, going through um, Suncorp at the time, um, through all the different 
permutations. And I just learned a lot about how business was done, how incentives were created. Uh, and that was really useful. Um, but at some point, you know, the the ability to sort of be entrepreneurial inside an organization becomes really tough. And I just felt that I was starting to feel a bit suffocated by the lack of being able to move and create value. Um, even though I, you know, with me and other team members had created some really good value and some unexpected value for these large organizations. Um, but I did jump out afterwards and, you know, I, I jumped out to my first venture, which was all about sort of workflow processing uh, because I saw an opportunity there. Um, and the other ventures that followed, you know, audio recognition, e-commerce, they were they were built because there was a really interesting repeated user experience that I just observed in people where it was, hmm, it seems like someone's got a problem with that and you just try and validate that problem and then just try and work out you know, how well do you know that problem and to what extent can you try and solve it? And so there were three companies that went through that kind of process. Um, and then, you know, through that opportunity, I had a chance to teach and that's obviously where we got to know each other because it became clear, I think, to a lot of tertiary institutions that were teaching at universities and the like, that the future value in our economies was going to be created by entrepreneurs as it had been done, you know, two generations ago. So whenever we think about things like, the big brands we know today, you know, Phil Knight over at Nike, he was hustling hard just to try and get Onitsuka Tiger shoes to come into the States. And we sort of forget about what Nike, how it all began, but it's an extraordinary story. We think about Meyer and Grace Brothers here in Australia. You know, Meyer was started by the Meyer family who, you know, really put everything on the line to try and make it what has now become some icons. Um, you know, the Belgiorno Nettis family that essentially built all of Australia's infrastructure um, with other families. You know, every time you go past a very large power plant, every time you go past, you're driving out in the bush and you see those really long um, power connection lines, that was done in the 50s and 60s by people that came from Italy post-World War II to sort of build out Australia. And that's that's Transfield for anyone who doesn't know who that family is. That's it. <laughs> yeah. And so when you when you look at that, you sort of go, well, where does our current crop of entrepreneurs come from? Um, and a lot of people, you know, will see their parents and their, you know, what they did as a living and say, well, maybe I'll just do what dad did or maybe I'll do what mum did. Um, and we all sort of try and follow into that. But, you know, the advent of all the software and information that we have has helped people understand there are other ways to do careers. You know, we see a lot of doctors um, come, you know, 10 or eight or 10 years into their career and just go, actually, I'm not sure this is for me. And so they're going, what are you mad? You've just spent this enormous amount of time studying and training, but actually the incentives aren't there for them to really stay or they want to try and augment what's going on. And you see this across all different backgrounds. So when it came to thinking about the education around this, you know, the US had done some great work at Stanford around how you would do things around the lean startup, how you would build companies, accelerate, do all these kind of things. But it wasn't really offered to graduate students who were actually at the prime of their lives to make a pivot and a course correction somehow. And so, you know, I took all that lesson and the learning to to teach. And it was one of those things where we had to create it from scratch because there wasn't really a playbook to, to do that. So the course really evolved. Um, but then, like I said, you know, having done that for a number of years, um, you get to a point where you go, all right, so um, you can be really successful building companies, but many people won't be. You'll learn a lot. You'll do okay. You'll keep your head above water. But are you really moving forward or do you have to sort of, you know, now look after a family or whatever the case was? And my wife and I had um, our two young kids uh, while I was building companies uh, and while she was a management consultant. And we just sort of refactored our lives a little bit to 
um, to sort of really be better at being at home. Um, and sort of fast forward to now, it was just fortunate that I think we came across this healthcare opportunity and we just, you know, we both agreed that it was the thing to go really strongly after. Um, there's a bunch of heartache that comes with this. There's a bunch of stress. There's a bunch of anxiety. Um, it can lead to some pretty bad mental health outcomes if you don't watch yourself carefully. Um, but there are many people out there just trying something different. And when you when you peek into that ecosystem and you peek into all those people who are just giving it a shot, no matter if they're telling you the story or not, um, they're, you know, they should be really congratulated because they're just trying to do something different. Um, and we should never forget that all the big brands we love today started as a really crazy idea once. So hopefully in that journey, people will look at what we've done here and sort of go, actually, I might give that a shot. And the sooner they arrive at that point of view, even if it doesn't work out, the fact they tried, um, the, the better we'll all be for it. Do you have any key lessons that have stuck with you throughout your career that you really cherish or, or draw on now as a as a founder of Drop Bio Health? Um, growth is always about partnership. It's always about the partnership. Um, and so that means that when you look for, whether it be channel partners to sell your thing or um, partners that you need to partner with, so supply chain partners or the like, you can look at these are really functional companies that you need to find a way to do a deal with and rush through and everything else. But the best, the, the only way I know how to do this is to build um, really strong relationships with the people of those companies, not just one person, multiple people, so that they can understand my intention, I can understand theirs, and we can find a way that where we both consistently win and that we can both consistently call each other and go, hey, listen, we've got a problem or we don't know how to solve this and not to be worried about, oh, will they think that we're weak or will they think that we're not actually up to up to scratch um, because everybody every day is just signing up to try and solve problems. So if you can do that with other people, it just creates such a, a relief in a system that you can then progress. And that trust that gets built through that process um, pays off in really spectacular and unexpected ways where people say, I was talking about you the other day, maybe we can try and do this. And that just happened to be yesterday coming out of a, a really fantastic forum that I would never have expected to be invited to. And now we have a very different potential trajectory for our business. So it's it's those kind of things where if there is one, if there's only one lesson, um, you have to find ways to be really interested in other people and for you to create interest in what's going on in your world. And that will attract the right set of people. Those who are not interested are not the right people. Um, but there are many people, if you put yourself out there and you have those conversations and you're genuine and authentic in how you want to help and you consistently ask, how can I help? Um, you'll find that that is such an unexpected characteristic in a conversation that people go, I just, I don't get why he always asks how I, how he can help me. I, I haven't helped him yet, but the, the irony is that it all comes out in the wash. So, you know, you just have to have faith in that, in that knowledge. Um, but I've never been let down by investing in other people to build great partnerships, whether that be partnerships with my, with my team members, so my direct reports, my co-founder, whatever else, right through to people who are on the other side of the planet that heard about what we were doing and reached out to me on Twitter and said, hey, listen, can we have a conversation? It's rare that I'll say no to that because nine times out of 10, the outcome is quite spectacular. So I would just say it's all about partnership. Final question. What's your silver bullet for business success? You have to look after yourself. Um, and I know that will sound very trite coming from somebody who operates in healthcare and wellness, but 
let's just think about what it was like being locked down in COVID. And let's think about all the things that we didn't have access to and the way in which life was really fragile for people that were in aged care facilities, for people who were trying to homeschool, people who were just trying to find a job, study. It was just really hard. And it wasn't that long ago, right? It was like it was a year ago. So when we go back to um, how we can perform well, and by perform, I mean sort of show up and contribute and feel good about the contribution, you need to have slept well. You need to have putting good things into your face to sort of fuel your body. You've got to be able to have great connection with people and laugh and not take life too seriously, um, but also just to be good at what you want to be good at. So you can't do any of those things if you're not well. So just be well, and then everything else will tend to follow from it. Love it. I couldn't agree more. Um, Phil, it has been an absolute pleasure, and I think we could talk for hours, but... We could. Alas, you have a company to run. (laughs) Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me.